This morning's scripture comes from Acts 8, 26 through 35. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you were reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About, about himself or, or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning and uh, welcome uh, to our Easter service at uh, Leewood Campus. I'm Tom and uh, we are just really glad you're here. Um, there's probably a lot of reasons each one of us are here this morning. Um, so for some of us, it might be, you know, a yearly tradition. You go to church on Easter Sunday, then you do brunch or whatever that is, and that's a good thing. Some of you maybe got a nudge from a spouse or a parent or someone like, hey, you need to go to church on Easter morning. And some of you who attend church regularly, um, you know, you probably need, like I do, a fresh dose of Easter hope in a world that seems to be rather broken. So whatever prompted you to come, I want you to know, I'm really glad you're here. And I bet that most of you, since it's Easter morning, think you're going to hear a message directly about the Easter story. Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that our text has the echoes of the Easter story hovering over it at every word. And our focus this morning is not so much what Easter is as it is what Easter does. What Easter does in a life like yours and a life like mine. So what does Easter do in our lives? I want to suggest this morning that our story gives us three things. Three things Easter gives us, three powerful truths and if you follow along and stay awake with me, it means, first, Easter creates a place for everyone. Easter creates a place for everyone. We're also going to see a second truth or a second thing Easter does, and that is that Easter heals every wound. And third, Easter gives a life that never ends. Now, if you brought a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to Acts chapter 8. In the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. 
Now, as a church family, we have been exploring this remarkable book called the book of Acts. It is a factual history of the very beginnings of the early church. Last week, we looked at an individual that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, highlights for us. He puts the literary spotlight on a man named Stephen. Stephen is the first martyr of the Christian church. Now, right on the heels of that, Luke now gives us a literary spotlight on one of Stephen's colleagues. His name is Philip. Like Stephen, both Stephen and Philip have encountered the risen Christ, have embraced the good news of Jesus, and their lives have been changed. And they're going around telling others about it. Now, as we come in Acts 8 to verse 26, things get really interesting. It's sort of like a twilight zone or kind of a goosebump, ooh, okay? So here we go. Easter creates a place for everyone. Now, Luke's story begins, if you follow along in your Bible or listening carefully, some texts describe an angel, others a divine messenger. But however you interpret this, Philip is given divine instructions. The instructions surprise us for their brevity, right? Go south to a desert road, right, from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, if you were Philip, wouldn't you want more information? <laughs> you know, you'd want to say, what's the coordinates? I'm going to ask Siri or plug it into my Garmin, right? And you'd have lots of questions like, where are we going? What are we doing? Uh, should I uh, tell my spouse if I'm home for dinner, you know, or what about my boss? How long is this going to take? All these questions flood my mind because I want to know what's going on. But you'll notice in the text, there's no hint that Philip has given any information nor is one question that he has in his mind asked. What we are told by Luke that is really important in this story is that the place he's going is a desert. Now, if you've been in a real desert in the Middle East, as I have been, I'm telling you it's miles and miles of sand. Most deserts, one thing is true. There are not a lot of people hanging out in a desert. And this is important to Luke. Because Philip is not being sent to a bunch of people. Philip is being sent to one person. One person. And what Luke is introducing to us in a God-bathed world is that the sovereign God who loves us will move heaven and earth to reveal himself just to one person. Who is that person? Now notice, it may be surprising, in verse 27 we are given a portrait of this person. And God's word declares, and he, Philip, rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, Queen of the Ethiopians, this is a, a nation in Africa, it's not the current one, but way in Africa, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now notice Luke, the writer of Acts, does not tell us his name. But he does describe what's most important to our story. Where he is from, the work he does, and his high standing in the government of the nation which he represents. So we need to understand that he is a high-ranking official, most likely coming with a large retinue of officials as he rides his chariot. The text tells us that he is like 
a contemporary secretary of treasury. Uh, regardless, he controls the money and he has a lot at his disposal. This is important in the story. We do know that he has traveled at least 200, 300 miles to Jerusalem in a chariot pulled by horses. Now, as a government official, and I think this is what Luke is tipping his hat, just my hunch, is he probably had some important diplomatic business to conduct. But the text says specifically that he has another motivation for this massive journey, and that is to worship the God of Israel. Most likely he had heard of Herod's amazing temple, one of the wonders of the world, and he wanted to go worship. It is also important to understand that as a non-Jew and a foreigner, he had very little access to this temple. He was virtually excluded. Now, as Luke continues the story, I wish he'd tell us more what he did there. How long did he spend in Jerusalem? I don't know. Luke's focus is he's on his way back home. And Luke's focus is that he's riding in his chariot. And if that's not enough, he is reading a scroll. There are probably three or four of them. Isaiah is a long text. Now, was it something he had received as a gift of his diplomatic mission? Perhaps. This is the day before copiers. You know, you just print it out. This was a high treasure, something of high value, or maybe he purchased it in Jerusalem. You know, he had a big credit card. We don't know. We do know it's a treasure. And he is reading it out loud as you did in that day. So imagine you are riding in a chariot on your way south. There's a group of uh, officials with you and a couple horses and you're heading there and it's desert everywhere. You're reading this text, and all of a sudden next to you, there's this guy running. I mean, this is like, uh, no offense, Timbuktu. I mean, this is like Nowheresville. Out of nowhere, a Jewish man runs next to your chariot. And, you know, you must have been startled. I would have. Not only that, Luke tells us the story is... This guy is running. I imagine him getting out of breath. Uh, do you understand what you're reading? Wow. And as a high official, educated official, you know, I would uh, get out of here. I'm trying to read. Not at all. He invites him up to his chariot and says, basically, show me. Now think about this. Two worlds, very diverse worlds, a Jewish Philip, an African official. Their lives are intersecting together in the middle of nowhere. The African official is reading the Jewish Hebrew scrolls of Isaiah. And Luke wants us to ask the question, what are the odds of that? Is this a mere coincidence? Or is something going on here? See, Luke wants us to understand that there's more going on here in a God-bathed world. He wants us as a reader to enter the story, to feel the goosebumps of the moment that a sovereign loving God who raised Jesus from the dead will go to the greatest lengths imaginable to reveal himself to people like you and me. Let that soak in for just a moment. 
Luke wants us to marinate in the wonder of that moment. And it may seem that this high-ranking African official is the one seeking God. After all, Luke says he's gone to Israel to worship. But Luke, as he often does in his brilliant literary style, drips irony and paradox into the story. For it's ultimately the seeker that is being sought. Isn't that true in relationships or like that, aren't they? In, in relationships, we don't often understand who's seeking who in the matter. When Liz and I, my bride, met, she was a student at KU. I was on staff of a Christian ministry there. And um, as Liz tells it later, <laughs> she was tired of waiting for me. So it was a Super Bowl party. I met her in August. You know how long this took. She comes up to me at the Super Bowl party and said, you know, could we have coffee? And I pull out my planner. It's very typical of me. (laughs) How about coffee at the student union? And she looks at me. I remember this. She said, how about dinner? Some of us guys need that hint, right? And... uh, What was great is after we were married, I ran into one of her sorority sisters. And see, I thought up to this point, I was sort of, had my eyes on Liz. I was sort of pursuing her. And one of her sorority sisters said to me, Tom, do you know that when Liz met you the very first day on that hot August day, she came back in the room and said, I'm going to marry that guy. But we do agree on this. Actually, it really works well, guys. Just saying, when you're having a hard time and you know your spouse is frustrated, I said, remember whose idea it was. (laughs) It really works. But we do agree on this. In all that mystery of who sought who, that God is the one that orchestrated our life. He moved all kinds of realities so that our lives would intersect. Because in our story, Liz and my story, God is the ultimate actor on the stage. And this is what Luke is saying. Yes, there's Philip. Yes, there's the Ethiopian eunuch. But God's fingerprints, his sovereignty is all over every arrangement here. See, God is ever present in this world. And he's at work in the smallest details of our life, even when we can't always see it at the time. Here in Acts chapter 8, It's just amazing. You see how the gospel is moving beyond a very monotheistic, exclusive Jewish Jerusalem to a very distant, polytheistic Africa. Hear this carefully. From its very beginnings, Christianity has had an inclusive global mission. It transcends all languages, all genders, economic, education, and ethnic differences. The good news of the gospel is it is offered to everyone. And there is a place for everyone who will put their trust in Jesus. Jesus himself captured this inclusive invitation. In a text of the New Testament in John that is perhaps the most common text, if you've ever read the Bible, Jesus says, for what? For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. No matter your background, what you have believed, what you have done or not done, no matter your gender, your ethnicity, your language, your economic status, no matter how religious or non-religious you are, this story reminds us, and the empty tomb reminds us, you are unimaginably loved and unimaginably wanted by God. God's love for you is beyond any human description of words, and the Easter story reminds us that God will go to the greatest lengths to move heaven and earth to love and know you in and through his only son, Jesus. There is a remarkable scene in the movie. I don't know, it's a classic book. Maybe you've read the book. Uh, it's the movie called The Count of Monte Cristo. It's a classic old movie. Uh, there's much to this movie, but let me just zero in on a conversation that two prisoners have. It's an old grungy dungeon. There's this old prisoner who's been there forever. A young prisoner who arrives who is the victim of injustice. He's been wrongfully put in prison and he's bitter and angry as you would be with your plight. And somehow they begin to talk about God and faith. And the younger prisoner says, I don't believe in God. And the older prisoner looks at him with a smile and says, ah, but God believes in you. See, what an encouragement that is for all of us who wrestle with doubt. This against all odds, this divine arrangement of Philip's encounter with this high-ranking African official reminds us that God wants to know us more than we even want to know him. That the seeker is the one who is ultimately sought. That the sinner like you and me is loved. That the outsider is invited into God's family. What does Easter do? Easter creates a place for everyone, but it also heals every wound. Notice as Luke continues his story in verse 32, he invites us onto that chariot up at the seat, listening to a conversation Philip has with this high-ranking official. Look at me at verses 32 and 33. Now, the passage of the scriptures that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Can you imagine this chariot in the desert? Philip is looking over his shoulder. The African official reads out loud a specific passion or position, or sorry, Specific portion of Scripture, Isaiah 53, right in there. If you look right before it, the previous verses, he has already just finished reading about a man of sorrows. Someone wounded for his iniquities, someone crushed for his sin, someone whose stripes will heal him. And now he comes to this text, this tender text, like a sheep 
led to the slaughter, and his curiosity and energy just erupts. He looks at Philip and he says, who is this? Is this the prophet? Or is he talking about something else? And in verse 35, we read these words. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, that's Isaiah 53, this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. Luke does not specifically tell us what Philip said, but we have a very good idea of the coherent terrain of thought Philip covered. Philip told him, of course, of the prophet Isaiah who had lived hundreds of years before, who looked down the corridor of time and saw the anointed one who had come the Messiah who had come, and not first as just a conquering king, but a suffering servant who would die and shed his innocent blood for the sins of the world to restore God's broken world and reconcile broken people like you and me back to God. And notice Luke is very focused on the interpretive key that helps us understand all of reality all of the understanding of the Holy Scriptures and clearly the scroll of Isaiah. What is that interpretive key? It is not an idea or a concept. It is a person. The foundational building block of all reality is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the focus of this entire book from beginning to end. And it is in his life, death, and resurrection, the interpretive key opens a coherent understanding of all of God's word and all of life. Philip would have shared the good news story, the whole broad story which Jesus is the author and finisher and immerses in it on a human stage. God created a good world. That world was vandalized and disintegrated by sin and death in a cosmic rebellion. But God did not leave the world or he did not obliterate the world. He sought to redeem it by sending a person. Jesus who would come and die for the sins of the world. And he would redeem it and restore it one day fully. Jesus' wounds would heal the world. That's the idea. And Philip must have described to this Ethiopian official how Jesus lived. Most likely his birth, his time in the carpentry shop, his miracles, how he died on the cross, how he rose bodily from the grave. He must have shared how Jesus ascended into heaven and how he would one day return and how one day the broken world, his broken life would be made new again fully. And how as an apprentice of Jesus, he could experience the transforming life in God's kingdom now and for all eternity. What Philip does here, he connects all of the dots so it makes sense. And let's face it, our hearts cannot accept what our minds reject. Faith must have coherence in intellectual truth and heartfelt truth. And both of them come together in the person of Jesus in this Ethiopian's life. But I think, a hunch, what emotionally resonated with this Ethiopian official was this description by Isaiah of the Messiah's broken body and suffering. I think that in Jesus' story, the Messiah's story, this Ethiopian official saw his own story. It's intentional that Luke suggests and says 
that this gentleman is a eunuch. Most likely, strong possibility, that he was emasculated. And in his broken body, and in the Messiah's broken body, he saw hope. It's hard to imagine, if you walk in his shoes, that this government official had faced the most deep wounds of the human life. I mean, emasculation must have brought physical, psychological, and emotional wounds. Clearly, it meant when he saw a little child play, he could never have biological children. He may have well faced cultural isolation. He must have had heartache that he endured day after day. Many of his dreams as a young man had been shattered. He must have been ambushed by the grief of loss. Yet Isaiah is describing a God who has wounds, a God who not only has wounds, but is willing to be wounded for him. And the Messiah's wounds would allow his wounds to be healed. Like the Ethiopian eunuch, each of us this morning has wounds, don't we? Jesus knows and understands our wounds. You may have had a deep childhood wound, being unloved or unwanted, abandoned or even abused. Maybe you have a deep father or mother wound where you were abandoned or felt like you never measured up. You know, you were never smart enough, never good enough, never funny enough, never beautiful enough. Maybe you have a marriage wound. Perhaps a spouse has been unfaithful or treated you unkindly or has been unsupportive of your vocation or has not been there emotionally for you over the years. Maybe you have a work wound where you've been treated unfairly or been discriminated against because of your gender or paid less because of your gender or your ethnicity. One of the greatest wounds that breaks my heart as a pastor is that I know so many that talk to me that have a deep church wound. Past experience with a faith community that hurts you deeply. I am so sorry. Christian faith has a God who has wounds. There is no other God who has wounds. Like no one else, Jesus understands your pain when nobody else can fully understand it. Because on the cross, Jesus' suffering servant experienced the most excruciating wounds of abandonment, of rejection, of humiliation, of abuse and torture, and he did it for you, and he did it for me. Jesus endured all that so that your wounds could be healed, that you and I can be forgiven and given new life today, and yes, for all eternity. What does Easter do? Easter creates a place for everyone, including you. Easter heals every wound, your wounds. Lastly, Easter gives a life that never ends. Philip is sharing the good news of Jesus. Philip must have said, Jesus is alive. And you can know him and follow him. The very God of the universe is inviting him to be his disciple. And they're riding along in this desert road. This is what's so amazing to me. And all of a sudden, there's not just a trickle of water, there's a big body of water. They go down into it. How amazing is that? Wanting to embrace this Messiah, he asked to be baptized. I just love the fact that he didn't delay. (laughs) 
He encountered the person of truth and knew the truth of the gospel, and he embraces Jesus as his Lord and Savior. (laughs) His life is transformed right there in the desert along this road. That's good news. The good news of Jesus is the good news for you and me too. The good news of Easter is that Jesus has risen from the dead. As a young boy, and ever since then, I have never got over a fundamental question that has the greatest implications to everyone hearing my voice this morning, and that is this. Either the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, is of no consequence, or it is of the ultimate consequence in your life and mine in the world. And I have to tell you, I believe with all my mind, heart, soul, and body, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate consequence in your life and mine in the world. Jesus rose bodily from the dead. It changes everything. The Eastern message is not only about Jesus coming out of that tomb, but the opportunity for each of us to get out of the tomb too. Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. Jesus is the only one who can forgive your sin and give you the life you were created to live, the life you long to live. Here, now, today, this week, and all eternity. The new life is a gift of grace. Hear me carefully. It is not something any of us can earn by being good enough or religious enough. This indescribable gift, this grace gift, is made possible by Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and his death-defying resurrection. We receive this gift when we repent of our sin and place our complete trust in Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. In faith and trust, will you receive this indescribable gift this Easter morning? I don't believe you being here this morning is an accident or a coincidence. You may be not seeking God at all, but I am confident God is seeking you. God longs to know us more than we long to know Him. I can't fathom that. But He can transform your life and mine. He is the ultimate seeker of us. If you've never placed your trust in Jesus, like the Ethiopian government official in our story, will you consider that this morning? You can do that simply in the quietness of your heart, right where you are. Express your repentance of your sin and trust Jesus. And I am confident that the God who invades this world the God who fills this God-bathed world, the God who moves heaven and earth for one person will meet you right where you are this morning, wherever you are. Perhaps you're not ready to make that commitment. I'd simply encourage you to simply say, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. I'm confident he will if your eyes and ears and heart are open to him. And if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, will you be like Philip this week? Will you be sensitive even today, this week, at school and at work? 
when God has orchestrated people in your life and opportunities for you to share the good news of Jesus. The good news of Easter transforms lives. I was reminded of that this week. My bride, Liz, and I saw the movie I Can Only Imagine. I have to tell you, this movie is just sweeping the country, and I was a wreck. I was a wreck. The story is about Bart Millard, who wrote this massively popular song. I can only imagine. It's platinum, platinum. Millions of people have heard this around the world. The story is Bart had a deep father wound from his abusive father, but through the transformational power of the good news of Jesus, the story tells that Bart and his dad came to faith and they were reconciled together. Can you imagine the power of the gospel to change lives? And after the death of his father, the prostate cancer or pancreatic cancer, Bart tells how this song was written in 10 minutes in a bus. And he wrote the lyrics of the song thinking of his dad and thinking of the life that Easter brings us and the changes of life now and for all eternity. Here's some of the words he wrote. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I can only imagine. What does Easter do? Easter creates a place for everyone, for you. It heals every wound, your wound. And it offers to give you life in Christ that never ends. Easter transforms lives. Not only the Ethiopian eunuch in the first century, but India Williams, who is a part of our congregation in the 21st century. Watch. When I tried this many years ago, when I say try this, it's the walk of faith, right? When I just try to do it the, the godly way. And I will always start from the beginning in Genesis, like, okay, let me read this. And I never exceeded Genesis. <laughs> it was just not easy. It was not comfortable for me. We give all the wrong people all of our time, all of our love when the Lord was there from the very beginning. And it just resonated with, I'm like, mm, you preaching to me. Like, <laughs> I need to get come back. I need to learn more about this. My probably most memorable moment, moments at the church has not happened yet. I will be baptized, and I am super pumped about that. India has become a, a friend, and I've been so excited to journey with her in her walk with Christ. So India, tell us this afternoon, this evening, why do you want to be baptized? Well, to be honest, the Lord has been calling me for many years, but I put him on hold. I took other calls before his for many years, and it wasn't until a year ago where I found myself begging him not to wake me up. I was at the lowest point, and he woke me up, and he told me that I serve a purpose, and it's the best conversation I've been having with him since I answered the call. It's been a long walk. But it's not just for me. It, it's, it's really to, to prove and just let the Lord know I am so serious. 